you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonking. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well endowed. On this episode, we get to meet Jeff Shalafu. Jeff is an Indigenous Two-Spirit father whose Cree name is Gimwewetu, or Silent Walker. He is a member of the Métis Nation and an advocate for sexual and gender diverse minority communities. Currently in graduate clinical social work studies, Jeff is also a co-founder and former co-chair and now the executive director of the Edmonton Two-Spirit Society. He also sits on Alberta College of Social Workers' Sexual and Gender Diversity Program, and he's the outgoing program coordinator of the Peer and Peer Harm Reduction Program at Edmonton Men's Health Collective. This program supports the 2SLGBTQ community in reducing harms associated with sexualized substance use. And aptly so, as he openly shares his lived experiences through homelessness, 20 years of active substance use, and over a decade in correctional systems which strongly correlate with his sexual and gender identities. Wow, that is pretty impressive. And yes, listeners, here's your heads up. In this episode, we will hear some of Jeff's story and discussion around substance use, correctional systems, and sexuality. We were excited to talk to Jeff on our show, not only because of his work with Edmonton's Men's Health Collective and with the Edmonton Two-Spirit Society, but also because he was a recipient of the Belco Brasso Métis Awards. Turns out, Jeff has quite a few connections with Edmonton Community Foundation. That's right. Jeff joined our producer, Lisa Pruden, to tell us about his story and to share his journey into social work. Just a heads up, you might hear a caller jingling in the background from time to time, and that's Jeff's cat, Shancy, or possibly his adorable chihuahua, Chase. Okay, let's take a listen. My name is Jeffrey Shalafu. I am a Cree Métis citizen of the Métis Nation, and my Cree name is Gimwewetu, or Silent Walker. I am a social worker, and I'm currently a graduate student in clinical social work with the University of Calgary. And I just got my acceptance letter to complete my master's this morning. Congrats. Uh, I'm also a dad. I have a, a seven-year-old son. And uh, it's exciting to be a dad. <laughs> well, it's it's great to meet you over the internet. And so I, I was very much looking forward to talking to you about your work with Edmonton's Men's Health Collective, EMHC, and also looking forward to talking to you about your connection to Métis culture. But before we do all that, do you mind um, sharing just a bit of your journey and how you got into your career as a social worker? Ooh, so as social work is a helping profession, I have found that a lot of social workers or, or folks that are in a helping profession are on that journey and, and myself included, just based on our own life experience, our own lived experiences, the things that have gone on around us. So to sort of recap how I got into the social work profession myself, you know, things started when I was young. Uh, I think that journey started uh, when I was very young at around eight years old. I watched a show called MacGyver 
and they did a close-up of MacGyver with a uh, Swiss Army knife or, or a knife opening a door, and I proceeded to do the same thing. And so that led to some really not good choices, although I was eight years old and I, I didn't have a, a very strong sense of what was right or what was uh, not right. I just thought it was exciting at that time. So that journey led me into um, a lot of criminal behavior over uh, a long, long period of time, uh, almost uh, two decades. And, um, you know, at 13 years old, at the same time, uh, most of us are going through uh, life and bodily changes. I, uh, I also uh, started using substances and I started injecting substances at 13 years old at the same time of, of being in puberty or, or coming into puberty. So it was a time where I should have been exploring uh, my intentions or the things that, uh, that were coming out for me in that time. And it was then that I learned of my attraction, uh, not uh, just to the opposite gender or other genders, but just a very open attraction to others. And I started to repress uh, a lot of those sort of desires and thoughts at the same time using substances to do that. Um, so from about 13 until about 30 years old, I repressed my sexual and gender identities. And in doing so, that required a lot of substances. So uh, over a 20-year history of, of substance use experience um, also coincides with about 12 years of incarceration. So that was in and out and in and out in and out of prisons um, from young offenders to adults, minimum security, maximum security institutions, which, you know, it, it's not hard to sort of digest that or, or to, to think of that because not only was I repressing who I was or locking away who I was, I was locking myself away physically uh, and mentally and just uh, putting myself in a place where I didn't have to engage in the things that I felt at that time to be shameful of. So uh, about uh, 30 years old, so I'm aging myself here, so almost 12 years ago now, I um, encountered a restorative justice process or what was called Edmonton Drug Treatment Community Restoration Court. And through that process, a very innovative, restorative way of looking at uh, the harms we cause, not just a, a punitive approach where one is sentenced and put away in, in prison, but really looking at what is going on. And, and that, that's what happened for me. I had uh, the judge, uh, the court officials, lawyers, social workers, psychologists, addiction counselors, peers, all coming together to uh, help me figure out me, <laughs> to help me figure out you know, what's my purpose? You know, what kind of harms did I do? And, and to really realize my true nature and to bring it forth. Uh, so through that restorative process, I learned more about volunteering and helping. That was part of that restorative justice program was volunteering the, in the community and looking at uh, our own situation, our own um, ways of being. And um, I did a lot of volunteering during that program. In fact, it was more than a full-time position at Bissell Center and other organizations and uh, YMCA as well. So YMCA, even though I was right out of jail, they, they opened the door for me and they offered me training and offered me positions 
and um, I just started to flourish from there. And I uh, did sort of educational uh, assessment, uh, employment assessment, and it pointed towards a helping profession. So I applied to become a social worker at Northwest and was accepted. And it's been one delightful and rewarding journey since. That's fantastic. And I think what's fantastic about it is um, that you were able to find a community of people. Like you said, there were so many people that came together to help you find who you are and to be accepting of that and to move forward. And so likewise, you're now part of that kind of network for other people. Um, and you were doing that with your work at EMHC in their peer and peer substance program. And so there you worked with many people who like yourself, weren't just experiencing um, discrimination or their journey through gender and sexual identity, but they're also navigating barriers related to race and stigmas around homelessness uh, and stigmas around substance use as well. Can you talk a bit about what you learned from your work with that program? Yeah. So the peer and peer program with the EMHC is, is such a, a unique and uh, forward moving um, supports for our community. Uh, it was just really, really up my alley because one of my uh, history and my journey through substance use and that correlation with my sexual and gender identities. So it, it involved um, many folks from across Canada. There was folks with the community-based research center, uh, as, as well as EMHC and others who had these sort of ideas and were collecting data on substance use in our community. Uh, and that's qualitative and quantitative data. So what were the reasons and what were the, the numbers kind of uh, looking at that? So based on um, CBRCs or community-based research centers, Sex Now survey uh, really looks at substance use in the GBMSM or the gay by men who have sex with men community. And I've sort of started to look at that as GBT MSM, so gay by and trans men who have sex with men. And, you know, substance use um, has different impacts, has, I wouldn't say unique impacts, but has sort of unique markers within and of itself within this community of the disparities and the barriers that are faced. And based on that knowledge, that information, the program was developed. We brought together, uh, well, first EMHC launched a substance use survey in the LGBTQ2S community in Edmonton. And, you know, through the things we learned on there, developed a proposal to get funding to run uh, operate the peer and peer program. So we were successful and brought together a community advisory team. So these are members of the community uh, from you know different generations, different experiences, uh, living uh, with current substance, active substance use, some living uh, paused with HIV, some uh, undetectable, some who have trans experience and, and you know really trying to encompass this community advisory team to bring that information, their own experiences, plus what they know from their community to make the program possible. So yeah, when the, the program was implemented, we, we really listened to the community, what the needs were, what the barriers were before, and all aspects of the peer and peer program seek to address those barriers that people in the community told us, hey, this is why we don't access supports. This is what would help us access supports and talk about these things. And that's really what 
peer and peer has done for the community. And, you know, we've adapted to, to look more at, that, at just the proposal that we got for funding. We, we adapted to our, our participants and our clients to say, you know, what do you need? We need support with housing. Well, that's not a specific support of the program, but I'm a social worker. So trying to help folks find housing, uh, income supports, uh, trying to find family physicians, trying to find inclusive folks that they can have to surround them. Very similar that I had in my my early uh, abstinence or recovery journey, you know, trying to bring folks together to be able to surround a person and offer support. So that's what Peer and Peer aims to do. I'm thinking... Um back to the video that I had seen posted by the Edmonton Journal where you shared more of your personal journey. Um, And you had mentioned in that video that no one has been dealt the same hand. Each person has their own journey. I liked that (laughs) because I've also been uh, learning a bit about uh, the idea of the single story. So if, if you don't mind coming on a journey with me as I try to work through a thought, I had watched a, a TED talk by a woman named Chimamanda oh, Ngozi Adichie. I didn't pronounce that correctly. Her name is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And she is a celebrated Nigerian writer and storyteller, where she talks about the single story. One of the examples she gives is the single story we hear about Africa. And so when she came to the U.S. to go to university, she encountered a lot of surprised white people because she didn't fit the single story that they had heard about Africa. And one example she gives is submitting a story to one of her professors who told her that her story wasn't authentically African because the protagonist in the story drove a car and was too much like him. And so I thought... This idea of the single story was interesting because we hear single stories about demographics all the time. And one of those demographics I think we hear single stories about is uh, people who experience homelessness and substance use. We have a single story in our culture that is told about that. And so I guess like through your work and meeting people, through the people you met while you were experiencing homelessness, what are your thoughts around the idea of single story and and how we could combat that. Yeah, so, you know, as you were sharing that, you know, my thought just went to all the different um, intersections of, of a person's identity, each single person. And yes, we are all dealt different hands and it requires us coming together to be able to support one another. And that, that's often the case when somebody is born, they have parents or caregivers uh, when they go to school, they have these people that surround them. Um, but one child in one class is not the same as the child in a class three rooms down and doesn't go to the same home. So they're they're dealt different hands, but we intersect in different areas, right? And, you know, the thing that came to mind was, you know, the typical stereotypes or the stigmatization uh, that people face. And as I embarked on this journey, uh, this helping profession journey, I often found uh, a lot of folks had a a typical stereotype of what they would see in a person's single story. And when I I first started to leave, you know, that life behind, uh, when I, when I left homelessness, when I left uh, the criminal lifestyle, when I left the, you know, severe substance journey, 
there was often a lot of remarks from people in the community of, of congratulations of, of, oh, I never would have thought you would have been able to recover. I, I always thought you would die in prison or overdose or fight. And, and oftentimes I, I found myself really countering a lot of folks saying, well, what would, what would lead you to believe that um, so and often that just led to stereotypes and and to what we learn from uh, media mainstream media you know movies what we learn from social media and so on and so forth we have these uh, projected stereotypes of certain individuals so um, you know often I, I when I share some of my journey people are like I never would have thought you would have been homeless and, and slept under a bridge or spent so much time in jail and you know, these, each single story that we do have, it is intertwined with, you know, we have the, this micro focus on the individual, but we also have this macro focus that I am an individual, but I'm an individual intersecting with EMHC, with the Two-Spirit Society, with Edmonton, with Alberta, with Canada, um, with the Métis community. And I, I intersect with all of these different um, aspects of our world and with parenthood yeah exactly and parenthood so you know we we each have a single story but there are many that are involved in that single story from you know the people i used to use substances the prison guards the the judges the lawyers uh, my parents my family my friends um, others who suffered uh, and lived through those things and you know we we find that you know, our worlds are ever evolving. And like for myself, I really developed a different um, way of thinking, uh, a way of, of recognizing unhelpful ways of thinking. And so just putting myself back to when I started to go to prison in Young Offender Center, I used to say to myself, you know, I'm, I'm a worthless person. I have these kind of thoughts and there are no gay people or queer or non-heterosexual people in my community at that time. So I thought I was wrong. And I thought, okay, now I've done crime and now they need to lock me away. I'm a bad person. And I used to say these kind of things to myself all the time. And I lived that way for a long time. And it wasn't hard to live up to what I was saying about myself. Not only was I saying it, but other people were starting to say it. The judges were saying it, friends were saying it, family was saying, you know, that, that was really bad. That was, a, you know, um, or the judge would be, you know, you need to go to prison for two years and, and really think about this and change who you are. And so, yeah, when, when we are able to look at the way that we think about others and think about ourselves, we're, we're able to change or, or move ourselves in a trajectory that could be uh, a lot more healthy and a lot happier. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that um, also takes me to that idea, that's, that sense of wrongness that we sometimes feel about ourselves and that is can be um, perpetuated by the culture around us. That idea of being wrong in just who you are is so damaging. For your journey, as I come to learn more about it, it seems that the thing that helped most wasn't changing who you are, but rather accepting who you are. What was that like for you? That was warming. Uh, I, you know, it's hard to, to just pinpoint a couple of words, but it was definitely life changing. I had spent so much time just repressed into my own self. Um, 
not only just in my mind, but my my physical body, I locked myself away for over a decade uh, and, you know, kept things within my own mind and, and lived that way for so long that when I became accepting, you know, it, it just happened to come about in a very organic, natural way. You know, I had my lawyer asked me one day and my lawyer became a really close friend and, and my number one advocate just asked you know, why do you think you do this crime all the time? Why do you, why do you think you live this journey? And, you know, it was really the first time I, I, I ever recall somebody asking me that. And my first response is, was because I, I think I'm gay and I'm, I'm just ashamed of it. And that was a moment of, of uh, recognition, a moment of, of really opening up. And I just, <laughs> and you know, I let emotion out that I had locked away uh, for so long and, and locked away in so many different ways. That that whole recognition of myself and that really respecting who I am, not just as a bisexual and gender identities, but as an Indigenous person, was also something that, that was you know, not a present in my life and, and not present in my family. And when I started to embrace myself and my culture, I started to learn more of of traditions, I started to learn more about acceptance. And, um, you know, that's been, you know, one of the biggest things in, in any role that I hold, whether it's EMHC or elsewhere, it's really giving people that space to be who they are, as opposed to locking away a little bit of themselves or holding a secret. And, and secrets, secrets can be poisonous. Secrets are, are, are damaging. And when we hold those in, there's often a shame or a guilt that can be attached to it. There are many ways to deal with shame and guilt and substance use is, is one of those big ways or, or unhealthy, other unhealthy behaviors to, to sort of put that shame and guilt in another place. I'm very much enjoying learning from your story as we go along um, and excited to uh, go back to at, at the top of the interview uh, when you were doing your introduction, you told us your Cree name. Would you mind saying it again and perhaps telling the story behind uh, how you discovered your Cree name? Yeah, so my, my Cree name is Gimwewetu. It is a, a name for Silent Walker, and it was given to me in ceremony. So just over a year or so ago, I um, had become very uh, much involved and closer to my Indigenous community as well as my Two-Spirit community, and um, often found myself calling upon knowledge keepers and elders uh, for support and guidance and to share knowledge and traditions with me because I just, I have a thirst for it. Uh, I'm very young in my journey of understanding Indigenous cultures and not to just to say two-spirit because that's a modern term, but to understand the various cultures in, in our lands here in this territory. So just over, yeah, just over a year ago, I was invited to go out to a ceremony and within these ceremonies, there, there's various traditions where uh, men uh, are on one side of the pole or they're on this side of the ceremony and women are on that side. Two spirits traditionally are often able to float back and forth, you know, depending on where they're at. And they often provided that sort of bridge between uh, everyone. And in that ceremony, I sat with my two spirit knowledge keeper right in the center. And, you know, we had people approaching from 
all different sides to engage in questions and, and, and conversation back and forth. And that part helped me realize some of the, the culture and, and history and tradition of two-spirit people to, to sit in the middle and be a bridge and, and be a, a person that is approachable by all that are present, regardless of, of your sexual or gender identities. So because I walked into that ceremony without shoes on or without socks, we were outside, you know, it was also a naming ceremony. So those that did not have a, a Cree name were invited to, to be a part of that ceremony. And I was just gravitated towards one of the knowledge keepers who also gravitated towards me. And, you know, we engaged in that conversation, learned about each other. We just did things in the right way. And we followed ceremony and prayer and it came to the knowledge keeper, the elder, and you are now Kimwewetu. And for me, I mean, I don't have a grasp of, of language. Uh, one of my learning diverse abilities uh, is around uh, reading and writing and, and, and different styles of learning. So learning a new language would be difficult for me at this point in my life. So you know, it, it took me some time to learn how to pronounce it, to learn how to spell it. But uh, yeah, so Gimwewe 2 is for silent walker. And that has a lot to do with uh, sort of my personality, my characteristics, and the fact that I wasn't wearing shoes. So I was walking silently within the ceremony. That's wonderful. So how, how do you feel that accepting yourself as two-spirited, which I've now learned is a modern term, but how, how has accepting that and finding that community shaped you now? Oh, that, that's a big question. That, that really is a big question with the, uh, many different ways of answering. So, you know, I'll go back to when I was 16 and I was in the Edmonton Young Offender Center. Um, and I started to learn about my last name and I started to meet other Shalafus uh, outside of those in my family. And, you know, many came from many of the other Shalafus that I met in the Edmonton Young Offender Center are Indigenous uh, and, and uh, come from different tribes and different areas uh, around Edmonton. And I started to learn then that I was Indigenous and I was invited to meet with elders, to uh, join Cree class, to, to go to ceremony. And, and part of me was still, you know, I am not Indigenous. I mean, I don't look Indigenous. I had this, you know, preconceived idea of, of, of Indigenous people based on uh, what our society had you know, given for Indigenous people. And, and again, very disheartening to, to remember what I used to think and believe then. And, you know, so since I was 16, I really started to grasp, yes, I'm, I'm an Indigenous person, but it wasn't something that I really fully embraced until I was about 30. And I, I embarked on an abstinence or recovery journey and, and my new identity. So it has provided me uh, a sense of connection to my culture, to my community. Um, as a two-spirit person, I have many two-spirit siblings um, or indigiqueer and indigenous folks that are a part of my life now that were not before. And I can call upon elders and knowledge keepers and my siblings to provide support or to support them or, you know, just to be part of life together, right? That whole part of we, we've all been dealt the different hands, but we're in the same deck, right? We're, we're in the same together. And, and um, you know, one of the big things 
was learning about my Métis identity. Like I had no concept or understanding of Métis. And this is, you know, a development over the last 10 to 12 years of understanding what it means to be Métis and the history of Métis people and being that in-between person or being that other colloquial terms that people had for Métis people and, and trying to really not brush aside, but put those identities in their place, but be the true identity of who I am. And, then, you know, there's been a big sense of community ever since I've embraced my identity and culture as an Indigenous person. And one has been through Edmonton Community Foundation. Sort of my biggest Métis gatherings has been the Belcourt Brusso Métis Awards. And I'm in a huge space with hundreds of Métis people and who are recognized and everybody is celebrating and smiling and eating together and sharing stories. That's a big part of culture. And once I, I started to, to find myself opportunities to be a part of that culture, it just made me feel more at home, made me feel more um, a part of a larger community than that person by myself locked away in a prison cell. So through, through that journey of, of reconnecting with Métis culture, what other aspects of culture have resonated with you or that you have you connected with? You know, one thing that really um, guided me in this journey was, was Northwest College. I had difficulty getting into uh, education or post-secondary education based on my past and my criminal history and was even turned away at admission desks. And with Norquest, I walked in and immediately sat down with the chair of the social work program and shared for over an hour. And, you know, within days, I my application was in. I was connected with Indigenous leaders within the college. Within months, uh, I was sitting with Herb Belcourt, uh, learning more about, you know, uh, our our culture and our history and you know when when sitting in front of as these esteemed people held in high regard in our community such as herb you just feel like this this huge sense of inclusion and warmth from these people and you can imagine from my own personal experience sitting as an example you know standing in the courtroom and the lawyers talking and the prosecutor and the judge and I'm just a, a small person in the room being looked down upon and judged, but sitting in front of, you know, people like Herb, where you are welcomed with open arms, um, helps you really understand the importance of culture and those connections within and the conversations that could happen. More things that I learned was, you know, the the benefits, not, not just the benefits, but the good things that happen with that connection to culture and having sort of a uh, a way to speak to our creator and our grandmothers and grandfathers in a good way and feel connected as opposed to feeling like you're you're asking for something like, oh, I'm in trouble now and I'm asking, but saying thanks for this and thanks for all of those experiences because everything that's happened in my past, every decision, every experience has led to where I'm at today and the things that I can say uh, that are a part of my life that make me happy, to make me feel connected. So. So to be completely vague in general about this next question, what's next for you? <laughs> oh, it's, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, uh, I'm really content <laughs> where life is right now. It is very, 
um, exciting because, you know, for many years I've envisioned some things in my life, um, some goals, some dreams, some aspirations, uh, you know, worldly travel, loving partner and family, parenthood, uh, a home, a place, a space, um, a career that's fulfilling. And it's like, I get to realize those things. I'm, I'm realizing and living them right now. But also just being mindful that, you know, life also happens. Things happen in our lives. We, we go through difficult periods and, and, you know, just making sure that I'm prepared and ready for, you know, the good things and the not so good things that may come from, you know, that might encounter our journey. So for me, uh, what's next uh, ideally is, is completing a master's in clinical social work, looking at a PhD and looking at indigenous health. Um, more learning and teachings, uh, trying to capture two-spirit teachings and traditions that, you know, many, many have been lost. So part of my role as the executive director of the Edmonton Two-Spirit Society is one, building capacity of, of the organization, but also learning from the community. Uh, what are the needs? What's what's going on? What can we do? And um, trying to bring community together so that we don't uh, experience uh, the hardships that Two-Spirit people have uh, encountered before. So trying to really uh, lift up and provide a voice and space for, for people to, to exist and be who they truly are. So I mean, that's really kind of where I'm at. I love that. I am heartened by that what's next is is a bit of adventure and and a continuation of the journey. Um, but I loved hearing that like that sense of contentment is really a bit of magic. It made me think of like one of the things when I was younger, I used to take the bus from one end of town to the other and I would always go through downtown to get to school or get to work. And I always thought to myself, I would love to live downtown. And now I get to live downtown. So just by location, I feel like I've accomplished it. You know, <laughs> like I've made it. Are, are there any small things like that where you look to and you're like, man, as a kid, I always wanted this and now I have it. Yeah, 100%. I, I can pinpoint and name various things. So yeah, in Edmonton, um, I, I spent, a, I grew up out in Stony Plain. And, you know, when I started to do those things like opening locked doors, they often resulted in lots of money. And I'd find myself coming to Edmonton uh, to the West End, but there was there's three apartments in Edmonton called West Edmonton Village, or it was something else way back when I was a kid. But there was a, a pool in there. I thought, you know, they're the biggest buildings I've ever seen, other than the ones downtown. But I'd always come from Stony Plain, which is out west, and I would see those apartments. And I'm like, I'm going to live there one day. Um, so I used to live there prior to owning this home. Um, that was one thing. Also, very similar to you, Lisa, the whole downtown Jasper Ave area. I had always wanted to live somewhere on Jasper Ave. Uh, I always wanted to maybe work on Jasper Ave and, and be in, in a place and space to, to feel like that would be an accomplishment for me. So yeah, when I, I, when I left the, the journey of substance use, um, my lawyer and their firm supported me and got me a, a loft right on Jasper Ave. You know, that, that was a big achievement for me. That was sort of a dream. 
there's a lot of accomplishments that I had always dreamed of. Being a father uh, is by far the, the greatest one because that one caused a lot of difficulty for me being, you know, to be a dad to me, that meant being with the woman and being married um, and, and being heterosexual and being in a certain uh, way of living. And, but since, you know, I, I'm a dad, I have a very strong relationship with my son's mother, who's a great friend, great communication. We live close to each other. We're in each other's home. We're in the same canoe together, camping together. All of us, you know, my partner, uh, my son, his mom. And that part I, I saw as perhaps a great way of living, like like something that would be an accomplishment for me. And I think... Um, it's ex sort of exactly what I had envisioned, you know, um, never thought it was possible, but it was something that caused a great deal of shame for me to be, all right, I want to have this woman in my life and a child. And then I want to have a male or a non-binary partner in my life. And that is possible and happening. Uh, and I like that too, because I think all of us as kids are, are sold a very particular story of what grown uphood looks like. Um, and it is very heteronormative. It's very suburban based. It's there's there's a cookie cutter. This is what it means to be a grown up story we're given. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to see themselves in that story. Um, so it's great for you to have seen that story and gone, yeah, I'm going to do it my way, though. Yeah. Yeah. Made it real. It took a long time and it was quite the journey to get here. But, um, you know, uh, like I said, you know, we don't get to where we are without what happened yesterday and the day before. So, you know, each day is, uh, is learning and we grow and, you know, where I'm at tomorrow or next year, next month, 10 years, I don't know. Uh, just I just hope it involves a lot of travel and learning around the, the world and different cultures. And, you know, pre-pandemic, um, a lot of that world travel had started happening. In fact, uh, you can't really see on the wall back here, but we've got a, a big map on the wall uh, and different clocks from different places around the world. Uh, but on the on the on the map, uh, we have photos of of where we traveled around the world, different images of us in different places. And now we have a pandemic, and we can't do that. But you know, that that's another thing that's next for me is not just knowing about who we are here in Edmonton in this space, but what's it like in Manila? What's it like in Vietnam? What's it like? you know, in different parts of the world, right? And uh, I look forward to that part of my journey and, and also bringing my son along as well to learn about the rest of the world. Well, Jeff, I think that's, uh, those were all the questions I was hoping to ask, plus more. Um, was there anything that you wanted to touch on that we didn't quite get to? Um, I mean, not not much. I mean, if I were to ask you to, to share with me all about the Edmonton Community Foundation, what would you have to say? Oh, man, it's wonderful. Uh, I love that I get to be there. The people that I get to work with are very passionate about what they do, and they work very hard to be able to provide the initiatives and grants and support that we do to the community. So I, I have the kind of role where I get to go and see the best of everyone every day, um, not just my colleagues, but like working with organizations um, who are doing work like EMHC um, and like various other organizations in Edmonton that are just trying really hard to get people what they need and to provide us with arts. Um, and I get to see very cool donors who provide the funds to make that happen. So I have a little bubble of joy every day where I just get to be around 
just the coolest of people. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, you know, my image of ECF, Edmonton Community Foundation, has just been, uh, you know, an organization that has been there for a lot of different initiatives that I have been a part of and and right now we're we're thankful for some support from ECF with the Edmonton Two Spirit Society as well and as you said being able to to receive support uh, from others to engage in initiatives that are helping others ECF has been there in, in a lot of different ways and thank you mm, thanks thanks for allowing me the opportunity to gush about it that was lovely. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much to Jeff Shalafu for sharing his time and his story with us. As you heard, Jeff mentioned the term two-spirit is a modern term. We thought we'd share a brief definition of the phrase. Two-spirit refers to a person who embodies both a masculine and feminine spirit. It is used by some Indigenous peoples to describe their gender, sexuality, and spiritual identity. This definition doesn't tell the whole story. There could be a whole podcast on what it means to be two-spirit and the history of this modern phrase. Visit our show notes for links to more definitions of two-spirit. During the interview, Jeff mentioned the Community-Based Research Centre, and Lisa mentioned a TED Talk by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. We'll have links to both of those in our show notes, as well as to EMHC and the Edmonton Two-Spirit Society. Jeff also talked about the Belco Brasso Métis Awards. These awards support Métis Albertans with scholarships up to $10,000 each year for post-secondary education. And this year's due date to apply is coming up on March 31st. We'll have a link to that and all of our upcoming student awards and granting deadlines in the show notes. Be sure to check out those funding opportunities. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, be sure to share it with your friends and family. And if you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help listeners find our show and they let us know how we're doing. And you can visit us on Facebook where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures from the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Bonkink and Andrew Paul. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.